It's Thursday, November 20th, 2014 from Slate. It's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. You may sense something different about me. Less ruddiness in the cheeks, but more attuned to my natural surroundings. From approximately 6.30 last night to 7.05 this morning, I joined the ranks of the vegan. Well, actually, dinner was at 6.30, and I probably hadn't eaten since lunch, so I'm going to retitle my book, A Vegan for 18 Hours. The 18-Hour Vegan. My friend Andy Bowers, you hear him giving the foul language warning occasionally at the beginning of this podcast. I can make him do that right now if I just say, The following podcast contains explicit language. Puppycock. Anyway, Andy is a vegan, a totally non-proselytizing vegan, and he took me to what he called the best vegan restaurant in the city. It's called Blossom. I pass it all the time. I figured Mayim Bialik had a controlling interest in it. I had considered eating there for that reason alone. But I'm game, even if what's on my plate isn't. So I went along. Appetizer, fried pickles, vegan food, totally delicious. But I found the TGIF menu and the Blossom menu didn't have that much overlap afterwards when it came to the main course. The manager of the place, she was really cool, and she was also buoyant and convivial, so flew in the face of vegan stereotypes. And she was very forthcoming about some menu items. Do not get the pizza! People new to vegans do not like vegan pizza. So I had Satan, 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 or Satan, or Satan. I I don't know how to pronounce it. I know this. It ain't veal. It's not trying to be veal. It's like this wheat byproduct, which is great because I resent wheat. I want to kill wheat whenever I can. In fact, I'd love it if wheat were all held in airless pens and not allowed to move about freely or even see its mother after birth. I did take the Brussels sprouts and the potatoes, which were good, and I crafted them. I made little Brussels sprout eyes and a potato mouth, you know, just as a poke in the eye to the old saw about not eating anything with a face, poking the Brussels sprout eye. Did I listen to jam bands? I did not. Interesting, though, I was thinking, how many names of jam bands, which must have big vegan audiences have non-vegan names, right? String cheese incident, probably not made with non-dairy cheese and disco biscuits, I'm sure made with lard in the baking process and just flat out fish. Although it's spelled the weird way and vegans do that with food that's not like the real food, radically misspelling a meat word to make it its own thing. Theory, theory about jam bands and veganism. Here's my old theory. Vegans, no energy, could it muster the strength to an object to an hour long blues exploration? could not conjure forth the discipline and rigor to reign in this particularly discursive version of Dark Star. New theory. Eating Satan is about acceptance. Look, it's not meat. It's trying to be meat. Go with it and don't fight it. That's the jam band way. Go with it. I say this because I was a vegan for a day. They might include the overnight period and not extend to a full 24 hours. On the show today, the Brazilian economy, not fascinating enough, the Brazilian economy plus pop-up video. That could work. And in the spiel, I will be explaining podcasts to people who might not understand listening to things. But first, well, they say if it bleeds, it leads, but we're going to go with the bloodless. We'll be picking over the carcass of the very welcoming topic of death itself. Death both repels and compels us. The fear of death is the most fundamental of human, sorry, animalistic instincts. The fascination with it, I think, says something profound, too. Whereas once we called people who were death-focused macabre, now I think 
we think of them as being honest or frank or if, like my next guest, you have jet black bangs and a few publicity stills featuring you holding a skull, maybe you can think of death uh, as kind of fashionable. Caitlin Doty is a Los Angeles-based mortician death theorist and the founder of The Order of the Good Death. Her new memoir is Smoke Gets in Your Eyes and Other Lessons from the Crematory. Crematory? Why does that sound like an ice cream store, Caitlin? Yeah, there was actually a nine-year-old boy who I got an email from a woman who said that he thought that was a crematory was like a purveyor of fine ice cream, yeah. which actually I think is kind of what we're looking for, ways to make it more friendly for the public. Tell me about the Order of the Good Death. What is that? The Order of the Good Death is a group that I started almost four years ago now, and the idea was I was working in the death industry, and I had been for a couple of years, and I thought there needed to be a better public conversation about mortality. What were some of the most annoying things about the way we talk about death that you that you sought to correct? Oh, gosh. Well, how long do we have? Um, euphemisms, the idea that we would say somebody passed away or that they're with the angels or that they're sleeping, as opposed to just saying, yeah, they're, they're dead. The other thing that we're seeking to correct is the idea that death is optional, which obviously is, is certainly not the case. And then I think the biggest thing, too, is the fact that we've really removed the physical ritual and experience of death from culture. We don't see dead bodies anymore. We don't usually go to the funeral home anymore. And in that case, death can almost seem like it's a hypothetical, which it's not. Now, was this, when you went to school for it, did this surprise you how untechnical or even unnecessary a lot of the things you're being taught were? It did. It really did. And I had worked for a year in a crematory in the field, I guess, for a year before I actually went back to mortuary school. And in the crematory, I saw just how little protection we needed and and how it actually worked. And then to go to mortuary school and to see them still teaching things like, oh, we embalm and chemically preserve bodies for the public health, which is not true at all. That's not what embalming is for. Embalming is for preserving the body and making it easier to work with for the funeral director. It's not for the public health by any stretch of the imagination. Now, I have read about your uh, alter alternative funeral service idea, Undertaking L.A., and I, it brings to mind, I don't know, like some goth girl or some sort of roller derby aesthetic. <laughs> Maybe I'm being stereotypical, but what's you it? You are. You are being stereotypical, <laughs> and it's, it's fine because that's, I, you know, I have black bangs, but I've had black bangs for 10 years. That's not really, you know, it's not, it's not a specific aesthetic that I'm going for. It's just the way my hair looks. Um, but it is a lot, it's interesting that the human tendency, and I do get this a lot, and I'm certainly not blaming you for thinking that, the human tendency is to make death niche in some way mm-hmm. and to make it this thing that, that's a fad or that's fashionable as opposed, to, because I think that's a way to shield us from the fact that it's this fundamental human thing that's actually a little bit terrifying, especially how we're doing it in culture right now. So I understand it, but it's also a way of sort of, taking away the power of death and saying, oh, she's doing this quirky thing as opposed to this, this much more fundamental thing. Wait, so you're saying there's not a quirkiness to a lot of the tone of uh, the book and the blog and how you write about yourself and how you present yourself? I would say that there's not so much in the book. I would say certainly, and I have a web series called Ask Mortician, which is very kitschy. Yeah. Um, and that's certainly intentional because I do think that that is an easier entry point for a lot of the harder things that I want to talk about. So if I if I just walk in and say, I'm going to tell you about grinding bones, 
for most people in 21st century America, the response is going to be, ooh, no thank you. Um, but if you come at it with a more lighthearted way of speaking, you're going to catch more flies with honey in that sense. So, another thing I was thinking about. You, Jessica Mitford, uh, seven of the nine people who are listed as death professionals in the order of death, women. Is there a gendered aspect to uh, thinking about death in the way you do? And if so, have you thought about why? Yeah, I, I have thought about why. And it, I think it's, it's bogus to say, you know, we're just, we're just more compassionate. We just understand families and death more. I think it has more to do, especially with the movement now, and to explain the number of women now, I think it does have a feminist aspect to it. I think it has an aspect of saying, hey, just like we want to have more control over our bodies alive, we want to have more control over our bodies in death as well. I've been thinking about this. I've been thinking about the interview. I think there may be a difference to how people approach a man who is associated with the death industry or thinking about it or talking about it and a woman. Even if you think about a girl, a girl who, as you describe yourself as a girl, was interested in issues like death. And what comes to mind is Wednesday Adams. Tell me about the boy who's interested in death like that. I think of, uh oh, potential serial killer. Yeah, I, I guess that is I, that is a little bit gendered in that sense, because there are obviously stereotypes around it. There are a lot of men who are involved in the industry who are very, a lot of them very straight-laced academics who yeah. have nothing creepy or serial killery about them at all. But that will change as thinking about death is not seen as morbid, but as you said in the beginning, just seen as frank. Our association with thinking about mortality as being associated with horror or creepiness, or serial killers, that's a very, very modern, and I would say media-influenced conception of the last 50 years. Caitlin Doty is a Los Angeles-based mortician, death theorist, and founder of The Order of the Good Death. Her new memoir is called Smoke Gets in Your Eyes. Thanks so much, Caitlin. Yeah, thank you for having me. It is my pleasure to be joined once again by Adam Davidson, the founder of NPR's Planet Money. Hello, Adam. Hey, Mike. And Planet Money, if I could sum up their greatness in a sentence, I would say cool t-shirt. No, I would say taking the complex economic stories and making them real and palpable to the listener. Is that... Is that I would say it? yes to the educated, curious layperson who doesn't know that much about finance and economics, right. but feels like they'd like to but often finds business and economic reporting confusing, off-putting. What I want to do is tap into that magic, because I did an interview, and what I'd like to do is almost like a director's or a, an economist's commentary track or a pop-up video-type feature. We're going to play this interview that I did about the Brazilian economy. But during the interview, my guest, who was game, who I challenged to, I thought he was great, but he did drop a bunch of industry jargon that he knew what he was talking about. I thought I knew he what he was talking about, but I kind of didn't want to interrupt him at the time to make the interviewer like, what do you mean by that and what do you mean by this? So we're going to play it now, and maybe you would help us by coming in, by popping in, if I have a question or if there's something that you think needs to be said during this interview. That sounds great. Let's go to it. So I'll read you a story from the LA Times from a couple weeks ago. Investors badly punished Brazil's stock market and currency Monday after President Dilma Rousseff's re-election amid questions about how she will lead the world's seventh largest economy. Business elites had strongly favored center-right challenger 
ACO Neves. They have a name, by the way, for how bad the currency did, how bad the markets have been doing. They call it the Dilma Dump. What this reminded me of was, well, let's go back to 2002. Headline, Looming Lula, Brazilian leftist royals presidential elections. Quote, concerned about a possible Lula da Silva presidential victory, major investment banks, including Morgan Stanley, Dean Witter, and Merrill Lynch, have downgraded their ratings of Brazil as a good place to invest. The move led to a drop in the country's stock market and currency devaluation. Morgan Stanley's Eric Fine thinks the Hei could hit four to the dollar if Lula wins, a slide that others say could trigger a default. Well, Eric Fine worked for Morgan Stanley then. He now is the portfolio manager of Van X Global Unconstrained Emerging Markets Bond Fund. Hello, Eric. Hi. Hi, Mike. All right. Stop the tape. First of all, a couple questions. Do you think I pronounced Hayal correctly? That you're on your own. Okay. I have absolutely no idea. You think I was nice, gracious, and welcoming Mr. Fine? Just uh, from a politeness point of view? Mixed. I mean, you, you know, you opened with him saying something stupid okay. several years ago, and then, yeah. you know, but I like that. Okay. For, as a listener, I like it. All right. All right. Let's play some more. So as we now know, Lula da Silva economically, was a boon for Brazil. The BBC said that when he stepped down, he left behind a booming economy of faith in the future, unseen in Brazil for decades. 30 million people rose out of poverty. Is this to say that guys like you got it wrong, or was something else going on? Um, well, thanks for that really tough question. Um, uh, the Rei got to, uh, what is it, 380. Yes. And uh, so there was an adverse market reaction. So I think one big difference between now and then is the market reacted very dramatically at that time. And by the market reacting, that's not just an academic point. But point one is the market reacted. And second, Lula reacted. I think it was part of his plan originally to be the Clinton of Latin America. Uh, and uh, uh, so there was a dynamic there. Oh, yeah. So Clinton of Latin America, what's that shorthand for? That's shorthand for Luke, President Lulu was from the left party in Latin America. The left has generally been associated with policies that global investors, global money people hate. And what Lulu did was pivot to the center by being a business-friendly markets-friendly president, actually to the surprise of a lot of people. And that's generally, you know, seen as what uh, Bill Clinton did when he became president. He pivoted the Democratic Party away from unions and, and generally, you know, progressive policies and more towards this centrist, market-friendly um, policy that I think most people think Obama has continued. Yeah. And by the way, uh, both oversaw very strong economies. Brazil's even more so as a percentage increase. Yes, exactly. Do you think that was a big factor in Lula's success? I mean, he's seen as one of the uh, best leaders in the Western Hemisphere of the last 20 years, largely because of how he managed the economy. Uh, I would say what President Lula did that was effective was he changed the debt composition. It was dollar-linked, it was dollar-denominated, and it was short-dated. And by making it BRL-linked or local currency-linked, longer-dated, uh, and not inflation linked, he gave the country a lot of flexibility. The basic flexibility he gave the country was, if your currency weakens, you're not doomed. Okay, I'm glad you're here, Adam. Go. So what he's talking about is, generally, the way countries, when you're an entire country, the way you borrow money, you want to spend more money than you have right now, you sell bonds, which is actually borrowing money. It's basically selling an IOU. So typically, what will happen is they'll 
go to an investment bank in New York or London, and they'll say, hey, sell a bunch of Brazilian bonds. And often poorer countries with a bad history of debt repayment will do this in dollars because people trust the U.S. dollar better than they do the Brazilian real or whatever the currency is. The problem is that puts the poor country in a very vulnerable position yeah. because if the dollar strengthens and, and becomes more expensive in your local currency, it just costs you a lot more money to pay back bondholders. Right. And you could be doing everything right, then the dollar strengthens and you're still a little bit screwed. So what Lulu did was he said, all our new bonds or most of our new bonds we're going to do in our own currency. That gives us more protection. Now, that, that comes at a cost because the people who buy those bonds, the big investors, will say well, I got to charge you a higher interest. Yeah. Now, this other thing is actually arguably more important, the duration of a bond. So when you're borrowing money over a short duration, yeah. like let's say six months or a year, that means you're constantly having to issue new bonds and it's scary. You might have to pay a new interest rate. It's like if every few months you had to apply for a new credit card and you didn't know what the interest rate was going to be, it's hard for you to plan long term. It makes you very vulnerable to shifts in the market, et cetera. So short-term dated is very scary, both for the country itself and the people they're lending it to, if it's at all rocky. He kept inflation from getting out of control as he changed the composition of debt. Do you think that the assumption within the markets, we speak of the markets, you know what I mean, the assumption was leftist and fiscally disciplined were at odds and Lulu blew that up? I think the market really just wants sustainable and internally consistent economic policy. The other maybe bigger point, which is, you know, I think uh, a really interesting one that comes out of your question is we tend to view things from an American perspective. Yes. You know, I'd, I spent a couple of hours with, uh, I guess I shouldn't say who, but um, um, somebody from the left, very prominent in Mexico, on monetary policy and a lot of policies, they're way to the right of any left, what we would call a left-wing politician on economic policy um, because they've had crises. Okay, stop. What does that mean to be to the right on economic policy? Right now we're at a moment in America where there's a very strong view on the left, probably most identified with Paul Krugman, but many, many Democrats, that we are at a moment where the government should be spending a lot more money to stimulate the economy and increase uh, economic performance. And the right obviously feels very strongly that the government should be spending much less. In the American context, that's purely a left-right divide. In places like Mexico that have had deep financial crises, you can find people who are on the left on a whole range of issues, but who say, no, no, we do need very strong fiscal financial discipline. Yeah. I would argue, by the way, it's it's kind of a spurious comparison. It's like... Right, saying, because people on the left in America, maybe even Paul Krugman would say, yeah, Mexico needs financial discipline. Right? It's not stimulus in every case. It's stimulus given a set of circumstances where stimulus is right. Right, exactly. And people like Paul Krugman, exa exactly what you just said. Is, the view is not whatever the government's spending, it should spend more. Yeah. Just like responsible economists would not say whatever taxes are, they should be less. I mean, th there's clearly moments when taxes are too low. There's clearly yeah. moments when taxes are too high. All right. Back to it. Why is uh, Dilma Rousseff being seen as so different from Lulu da Silva, leftist politicians who the markets are a little afraid of? First, she has not reacted the way he did to adverse economic outcomes. And so there's an element of this, which is, look, you have to look at the, the individuals and the decisions they make. Number two, um, she got reelected, reelected with uh, what 
most people in the, if you, you know, want to call it the quote-unquote market, um, consider, I wouldn't call it unorthodox, but certainly not uh, market-friendly policies. Then uh, the question becomes, what are the initial conditions? What, what are, what's the situation right now? Well, you have low growth, a current account balance, namely exports versus imports. I mean, I'm simplifying it, but exports versus imports, that's not that awesome. And uh, inflation. She probably has a much higher threshold for reform than what President Lula did going into this. And that's what I think the market's concerned about. What do you mean by a much higher threshold for reform? Many people dialing it way back to the beginning of the Lula administration and, and, and some of the tailwinds that he did receive would ask the following question. What came first, Lula or a positive terms of trade shock? Was it really Lula, uh, the, the, the positive things I mentioned about him, changing the composition of debt, uh, anchoring inflation expectations through good fiscal policy? Or was it simply that the country... The, th- the prices of things that it exported went up in price and things that it imported went down in price, and that the currency strengthened, and that as a result of that, inflation expectations improved. I think the key thing he's getting at here is investors are making their decisions based on what is going to happen in the future. Mm-hmm. When they're doing what they're doing right now, which is hurtling money out of a country, it's because, A, they don't particularly trust that that person will do a good job. But it's also what what is the room that that person can maneuver in? There's this fundamental mystery in economics, uh, global economics, which is that most of the growth of the next century is going to come from what are now emerging markets. You know, U.S., Europe, Japan, these are mature markets. There's not a lot of growth that's possible, maybe 2 or 3% in good years. But we have a pretty good idea that Latin America, Africa, parts of Asia are going to grow dramatically, that they can reach, you know, 7%, 8%, 10%. Why isn't money just flooding into them? It should be, because that's where the real growth is. And the reason is things like what he's describing. We're looking at their leaders and saying, I think when the chips are down, I have no way of knowing for sure, I think she's going to make the wrong decision. Right. And my entire point of this interview was, you said that about Lulu da Silva. He's like, this hemisphere is greatest economics leader in the last couple decades. So why were, were you wrong then? Are you wrong now? This is the entire thing I'm trying to Person. Right. And he's making the point there. Different person. Maybe we, we misunderstood things about uh, Lulu, but also different circumstances then. And so my question is, does this put these countries in a hole when, you know, Western investors sort of punish them like that? Or can it be a wake up call? Yes and no. It depends. I don't have a blanket answer. I think every country is different. Um, when I look at Brazil, it seems as if um, I don't know. If, I, I don't think it's a crisis. I don't think they'll default, right? And I think that's that's a really break, that's a new state of nature. That's a break in the system. Uh, but I do think the basic political economy functions, um, and and maybe they muddle through, and it's adverse for the market, but positive politically. I think the bet, if you're purely political, if you're if you're President Rousseff is that you know what we're we're going to be cashing a lot of checks, and they're not going to come due in our term. That's ultimately the basic political equation. If you were to give her one piece of advice, she calls you on the phone. She says, Eric, I've been following your work for some time now. What would you tell her? You're the president of the country, not the chief economist. So that means what? Look, the market is focused on who she's going to pick as, as, uh, what her cabinet choices are going to be. But the market's also discounting it because she's been extremely involved in economic policy. And, and, And Lula was not. Lula was very much a, a politician, I mean, in the good sense. Namely, he was focused on his constituents, and he got the basic thing most people on the left, on planet Earth, other than in the rich world, 
understand, which is inflation is the biggest challenge for the poor. Eric Fine, Portfolio Manager of VanEx Global Unconstrained Emerging Markets Bond Fund. Thank you so much, Eric. Thank you, Mike. What I took out of all of that is is a fundamental, like in America, we'd call it a constitutional issue, like a fundamental deep, deep issue, which is, you know, the president is elected to serve the people of the country and has to make some real trade-offs. And nobody, including most economists, would say a good president is not the one who just says yes to everything the economists say. On the other hand, when the economists say doing that is really, really bad and will hurt the rest of the country, you know, it'd be nice for them to listen to that. Well, Adam Davidson, founding editor of Planet Money, I want to thank you. Do you ever listen to the commentary tracks on DVDs anymore? I, actually, a friend came over with her yeah. daughter and wanted to play a DVD yesterday, and we realized we had no mechanism for doing that in our house. It's a shame. I love Netflix, but I do love commentary tracks. Like on The Usual Suspects, I learned that there's one shot of a plane taking off, and it has two engines, and when it lands, it has four engines. So there's an in-air engine attachment? I didn't know they could do that. Maybe you're better off without a DVD. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you, Mike. Adam Davis. And now the spiel. One podcast to unite them all. It is the internet sensation that has captured the imagination of millions. Candy Crush? Facebook? Ferret porn? Well, yes, but she's talking about a podcast. Apple calls Serial the most popular podcast in the world. It's a real-life crime story about a 15... Now, if you work someplace, any place, and if you do something all day and everyone around you does this thing, and then you go home and talk to your family about the thing, it's only natural to assume that other people will have some inkling as to what your job is just because you're so in the middle of it. So I understand coal miners might know that the public doesn't know the difference between anthracite and bitumen, but they don't have to go around defining what coal mining is to people. Now, I'm a podcaster. I do expect in some quarters people to not really understand what that is. I am not thrown if someone says, I keep hearing about podcasts. Where do they sell these things? I get that. But CBS, in this report on The Morning Show, is obviously talking to a different audience, one that not only doesn't understand podcasting, but might not be familiar with the concept of ears or hearing. It's being called a pop culture obsession, and you can't watch it on TV or Netflix. You actually can't watch it anywhere. It's kind of like the old days of radio, but this is on the Internet. It's this podcast called Serial. Actually, it's kind of off the Internet and on your iPhone or device, but we get what you're saying. At least Jan Crawford, the reporter, doesn't think the audience will be confused by the word Serial. Here I will now read People Magazine beginning its story on Serial. This was People.com. Pronounced like the sugary breakfast food, but dealing with a subject matter far more mysterious, Serial is a podcast that has quickly captivated the world. Wait, more mysterious than Frankenberry? That guy had some mystery about him. More mysterious than Grape Nuts? I mean, that was the breakfast cereal that asked, are you good enough for Grape Nuts? What the hell was with that? If you read a lead like, pronounced like the sugary breakfast cereal, but dealing with a subject matter far more serious... You should be saying to yourself, I have stumbled onto a magazine for dumb people. The People Magazine article's headline was Serial, the fastest growing podcast ever, receives backlash from murder victim's family. In it, the brother of the murder victim in Serial, Heyman Lee, her brother is quoted via a Reddit thread as criticizing those who view the murder of his sister as entertainment. 
So you're ready for the backlash the podcast received as per the headline? Here's that backlash directed at the podcast. Although I do not like the fact that SK, that means Sarah Koenig, the narrator and co-producer of Serial, although I do not like the fact that SK picked our story to cover, she is an awesome narrator slash writer slash investigator, so no wonder why this podcast is so popular. Backlash! There's the backlash. There were other pieces alleging backlash or attempting to create backlash, but there was no crack to those particular whips. For such a fine piece of journalism, Serial has certainly inspired some very bad journalism. Look, that CBS Morning piece I was playing before, I get it. The average age of the CBS Morning viewer is 58 and a half years old, meaning that for every hip 42-year-old, you have a 74-year-old balancing her out. Listen to this quote from Adnan Syed's mother. We must say, why are you taking him, you know? He say, you know, that he murdered. I say, wait a minute, you know. Wait, they said. That he killed the girl, you know. I say, wait a minute, why are you taking me like this? So what was remarkable about that was that the quote was subtitled. To me, it sounded like English, someone with an accent speaking English. But I get it. Let me just advance this rule of thumb when subtitling English speakers. Don't do it except if it's train spotting. Don't use the clip if it can't be discerned. And I thought that was fine. And it's also so funny how TV struggles when they're denied visuals. Here, listen to this part. Prosecutors convicted her ex-boyfriend, also smart, well-liked, Adnan Syed. His sentence, life in prison. The visual is a picture of Adnan next to a newspaper clipping, jury finds teen guilty of killing girlfriend. And then there's a camera swoop. It's really a rotation of the graphics. And now the pic and the clipping, boom, they're in a jail cell. If this is the state of journalism, and I've seen journalism, it is. No wonder people love serial. Quality, human, gripping. But I do think that as I listen to the show that I am gripped for reasons entirely divorced from why most people like serial. I like the way the milk takes on the cereal's flavor when you slurp it. No, People Magazine, that is not what I'm saying. I get the sense that people like Serial as a real-life episode of Law & Order. They like being whipsawed. They like the roller coaster. I really don't care as much about that as the things like this guy's life in jail and how the criminal justice system works and how memory works and what the psychology involved must be. I'm not saying I'm listening to it better than you or more high-mindedly. I've definitely gotten into real-life crime thrillers where I've been very invested in the issue of guilt or innocence, but those works are usually an hour and a half long. Uh, The documentary, The Thin Blue Line, say. Serial, on the other hand, has layers. Pink hearts, yellow moons, blue diamonds. Jesus, People Magazine, you have ruined a good show for me. And that's it for today's show. Andrea Salenzi pinged me from the cell tower at 6.09. But by Jay's timeline, she was putting in the papers to adopt a female orangutan, not a male chimp, as Jay originally told the police. Joel Meyer, managing producer of Slate Podcast, prefers to engineer phone calls from a Telos phoner unit that may never have existed. Andy Bowers is failing to pay sufficient attention to his duties as executive producer of Slate Podcast because shrimp special at the crab crate. You can subscribe on iTunes. Give us a listen on Stitcher. Get our daily email. Subscribe to that at slate.com slash gist email. We're on Yo. We're on facebook.com slash slate gist. Please give us all your theories about who did it, meaning produce this podcast. Email us at thegist at slate.com. This episode has been sponsored by Mail Kipmunk, an internet provider of clues and breadcrumbs. Mail Kipmunk, part of the Read Hearing Network. Thanks for listening. I'm David Plotz. This week on the Slate Political Gab Fest, is Thanksgiving a liberal or conservative holiday? 
Look for us in the Slate store or on iTunes or at slate.com slash podcasts.